Every team I watch and I study, my number one suggestion is, who do you really want to play? I think most teams benefit by playing one less guy. Oftentimes, these answers that we try to make more complex, there's an answer in simplicity. And to me, that one right there, if you can't decide which one, maybe the best answer is none of the above. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome back to the show former NBA head coach and current ESPN analyst, Jeff Van Gundy. Coach Van Gundy is here today to discuss coaching through average to below average seasons or stretches, after loss practices, and we talk matchup adjustments and attacking a box in one defense during the always fun start, sub, or sit. With members from the NBA to high school levels, we're excited to continue building a highly valuable learning and community platform called SG+. With SG+, we aim to bring the highest quality and deepest insights of the game from around the world on a weekly basis to our almost 600 video archive on SGTV private coaching community app, and our long read Sunday morning newsletter. If you're looking to explore and learn the game on a deeper level, or just save yourself time searching the internet for the best backdoor plays in Europe, visit slappingglass.com today and see why current members are calling it an essential platform for high-level coaching anywhere. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach... Jeff Van Gundy. Coach, thanks for coming back a second time. We're really looking forward to talking to you again. Appreciate it. I got to be one of the few that have been on twice. (laughs) Rare (laughs) air. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, we're excited, like I said, to dive into a bunch of stuff with you today. So we wanted to start with this. As we're recording this right now, it's mid-season for most teams. And I want to start with just getting through tough times through ruts, through potential mid-season blues, losing streaks, and sort of pose it to you like this. As coaches try to get through this middle part of the season, and maybe things aren't going the way you thought, you know, in the summer, you watched all these videos, went to clinics, you had what you wanted to do, and then you get to the season and something's either not working or not working the way that you hoped, and you're just trying to figure out how to get your team to the other side. What are just ways, or what are things that coaches can think about to kind of get through those more difficult times during the season to kind of get their team towards the finish? I think you have to have the right balance of stubbornness in your belief system and the adaptability it takes to solve problems. And I don't think anybody can give you the exact remedy of how to do that. But I think there is the art of coaching is understanding exactly at times what you must change, and what you must hold the line on. I think sense of humor is absolutely imperative throughout the whole year, not just in those moments, but the ability to appropriately, and I I go back to Greg Popovich's term of appropriate, right? Appropriate humor, when, how, the ability to laugh at yourself, laugh at, you know, circumstances that are beyond your control. And I think, you know, this is where you learn when you're in a struggle what you truly believe in and what you sort of believe in. 
those things that you truly, truly believe in, no matter what the struggle is, you will continue to try to get your team to do. The other things I think you can be more adaptable with. So I find so many of these cliches that we now have in basketball, I just want to puke. And the number one is we're either winning or learning. You're not losing, you're learning. I find that losing and winning, if you can learn from both, that's when you've got a team that can make improvement. I think you have to continue to point to the areas that you have improved in, constantly telling your team where they're truly at versus where people from outside the team may tell them they're at as an individual player and as a team. And I think constantly reinforcing that message gives you the best chance to have an environment that is conducive to improvement. Jeff, maybe give me like an example or where do you think, I guess, what's the hardest part about figuring out in that time, whether it's personnel, whether it's something you're running offensively or defensively? I mean, like knowing who you are, sometimes getting to know who you are can be difficult. Let's say when you're losing or when things aren't going well and like how coaches can think about trying to get to those answers so that they can get better. Well, I think the first thing is we've become a coaching fraternity that really values, quote, outside the box thinking. And I would say most of the answers are in the box. They're in the box because they're fundamental to how you've won and or lost forever. You have to get more better shots than your opponent. That's it. So start in the box. And then if the answer is not in the box, like defending better, rebounding better, limiting your turnovers, improving your shooting and shot selection, all those things that have been around forever, then go to outside the box thinking. Why you win is still the same as it ever has been. The game is played differently in many ways. It's practiced differently. Things have changed, but what wins and what loses has not. On that note, when I guess thinking inside the box or outside the box, you mentioned to deciding whether things we need, the stubbornness versus the adaptability, the things we need to change versus the things we just need to do better. When you were coaching, I guess, what was your process to evaluate? It's like, we got to get rid of that or no, we have to stay on this. Well, the easiest part is you have to try offensively to get your best players, their best shots and their best spot, right? So it may be coming into the season, you had an idea of where or what action may be best for a certain player in a certain spot. It turns out, even though it looks good, it should work. When you've had enough time to evaluate it, it's just not working. So the overall thought is getting Johnny the ball and getting it into his best spot. I used to have this fight with Patrick Ewing. He loved the left block. His numbers would tell you he was better on the right block. So we went to him on the right block a lot more And he would always fight and say, I love it over here. I said, I love that you love it over there. I love it when you score more and it's on that block, right? And so, you know, it would be this give and take and back and forth and a little humor spliced into a little reality. And I think the interesting thing about professional coaching that I think everybody would benefit from is when you don't have the power dynamic in your favor. And so you have to do a lot more convincing than you do telling. And I think that is incredibly helpful to you as a coach because you can try to drive consensus. You really have to have great reasons for why you do what you do instead of just, this is what I said, this is what we're going to do. 
and I don't have to tell the why. I have no idea why you would not want to explain the why, but I just felt like those interactions, especially when you have players that you know care deeply about the result and have great pride in their performance, you can have a give and take. It can even actually get heated at times. But as Bill Parcells said, I think you had Coach Parcells on, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Confrontation clears the air. And I thought, and it's so true. I think what's worse than confrontation is not confronting an issue. And so I think there should be clinics on stuff like that. You know, problem solving coach more so than just X and O's because it's hard. Coach, with your experience, were there times where you knew you had to have a confrontation with this player that you knew this needed to come out? And if you could get it out sooner, it'd be better for the team. And I guess ways that you would think about it or talk about it with your staff. I would say that those things don't really come in staff meetings. Those come, I think, from feel. I think you have to be ready to react in the moment. I think you can almost in your mind role play what you think is coming and how you want to either keep your poise or lose your poise. But if you know a situation is coming, timing's everything. No one can tell you when the right time is. You don't get them right all the time. But allowing things to fester Problems rarely go away on their own. It usually has to be resolved in some form and manner. And when I say confrontation, I don't mean that as a negative or as necessarily even loud, but this is what we're going to stand for. This is what we believe in, and this is how we're going to do it. And if you can't comply with that, then there has to be repercussions. Coach, on that, with confrontations, thinking about who it's with and how it's done, your better players going at them or having a confrontation in a different way, maybe than the subs and those that are not playing very much. I mean, thinking about obviously everybody's motivation in this middle part of the season and how those confrontations can help them or not help them. I think as a coach, if you're going to take all your frustrations out on players 10, 11, and 12, as you coddle players one, two, and three, inevitably you're going to have more problems. Whatever your demeanor is, fiery and intense, laid back and chill, I think however you coach your best players, you have to coach everyone else. And I think the demands on your best players should be similar or even greater than the players who aren't getting all the rewards of playing time and shots, recognition. So again, players have sensitivities. So you're working with everybody a little bit differently, but at the same time, I don't think your demands for the basics that you know lead to great chemistry, which is hard work, unselfishness being a committed teammate, all those things, you can't really let slide. Coach, when Pat and I were thinking about this discussion and, you know, right now, most teams are not undefeated anymore or, you know, 12 and two, like most teams are kind of somewhere in the middle where they're just figuring out the gray and trying to get through to the other side. And the other thing we were thinking about is just roster management when it comes to like keeping players motivated at this point where roles are pretty much established most teams should know who's going to get the most shots most teams know what the rotations are and still continuing to find ways to motivate let's say the bench the middle guys as well as the top guys kind of in this middle part of the year i'm gonna go on one tangent here please nothing that bothers me more when i hear someone say if only player x could be more consistent or team x could be more consistent we'd be better yeah duh (laughs) (laughs) that's the difference between players and teams, levels of consistency of good play. So in every league, there's only two groupings of teams that are consistent. The truly awful 
are consistently awful. The teams that are really good are consistently good. And what is hard where you're living in complete frustration is when you're in that 500 area. Because you know if you could make one or two more solid, sound plays in a game, these close losses would turn into more consistent wins. And you always rue the ones you give away without acknowledging the ones you probably stole. So the idea of this frustration, like pro sports, you see it. Everybody on average teams is either frustrated with their role, frustrated with the results. They just live in this frustration. I think it's the hardest coaching there is, is coaching a middling team and trying to keep the environment upbeat. Now you asked, how do you motivate? I think one of the biggest misconceptions of life is that you give another person motivation. The only motivation that truly lasts is self-motivation. And I think you can help with the self-motivation, particularly the players that aren't getting what they want by consistent communication and a show of appreciation for not only their role and its importance, but that there is great frustration in that role where they're giving more than they're getting. And I think that has to be brought out to them individually. If you were in high school, to their parents, to acknowledge that, but also to acknowledge it in front of the rest of the team members. And one thing I was taught early on was try to touch every player every day. That doesn't mean you're having a sit-down meeting, but You're walking around giving them in those fake stretching circles that everybody does. You might have three things from the previous game or previous practice. One thing that you noticed good, one thing you want to change, even if it's just something as a guy walking in with a surly attitude, you know, telling him, I acknowledge your attitude right now and it better get corrected or there's going to be an issue, right? We're in this era of everything you have to say to Johnny is positive. And I don't think that's right. I think you have to acknowledge reality. And that makes the positive comments even stronger because a player knows they were earned. But I think that constant hitting every team member, basically every day you meet, and then have your individual meetings, your group meetings, all that. But I think that's important. But the idea that you can motivate Johnny long-term, no, you've got to create an environment that helps maximize whatever motivation Johnny has but either he's going to be motivated to improve or he's not. You mentioned that coaching some of these middling teams are some of the most difficult jobs because the great teams, you know what you are, the, the bad ones, like you mentioned too. But with these middling teams, I think what can be hard is player seven thinks if he played more than player six, then they'd be better than 500 or all the way down the line. Then also too, just as a staff, knowing what it is that you're doing, whether it's working or not working or figuring out how to have confidence in what your processes are, if that's the right way to do it. I mean, I guess kind of going back a little bit to in these difficult middling teams, how as a staff and as a coach, you can still have confidence that what you're doing is the right way to do it. Well, coaching confidence is every bit as important as playing confidence. And you get confidence from successful repetition. And unfortunately, when you lose coaching confidence, it's usually because you're not getting the results that you think you should be getting. And I think coaches oftentimes are unrealistic about the results they should be getting. Most coaches think we should win more. There's very few coaches that say, 
man, we should really be seven and nine versus nine and seven. They think they should be 10 and six, 11 and five. And I think the constant striving is a good thing, but acknowledging when you are maxing out your team also gives you the confidence that even when you have some down times, you know you have the ability, you've done it before successfully. It may not be working as well as you would hope this year, but you can find your way back if you continue to strive and you don't alter your basic philosophy. Within the philosophy, I think there are many things that you can do. You can run different stuff. You can guard things different ways. You can open up the game a little bit more. You can slow down the game more. You can zone more, whatever it may be. But you still need to play excellent defense, take the right shots from the right people, handle the ball, have poise under pressure, all those things, right? And I think coaches, and I would say this particularly in high school, who have an ever-evolving roster and talent, depending on the year. I think one of the most important things is to maintain humility. And I think if you maintain humility in the good years, you can maintain the confidence in the down years. It's less about you and more about how good your players are. And you should focus as much as you can on how can I just get this group to play its very best, regardless of what the end result is. On that note, if we look at more towards practice and methodology, what are ways that you think or that you've seen coaches maybe miss the mark in building that consistent team and a team that can consistently perform? Well, I think enthusiasm to practice, compete, and enjoy each other and celebrate each other's successes is absolutely critical. I've been saying this in other podcasts. I really believe the great Chris Rock said, you got to enjoy playing the tambourine. No one wants to see a mad tambourine player. You can't always be the lead singer. And I think if you have an appreciation and enthusiasm for being a tambourine player and you can get everybody buying into the idea that role definition is the coach's job, role acceptance is the player's job, but everybody's important to our overall success. And then you demonstrate that with your actions as a coach and enthusiasm is a cornerstone and small microscopic improvements by any player and your team is celebrated as much as the negatives are corrected. I think that gives you a great chance to establish an environment that gives the players individually and your team your best chance to improve. And then I think the reaction, like I was taught in the NBA, never make corrections right after a game. Don't try to dissect it in front of the team, because oftentimes you can say things that are A, wrong, and B, heated and emotional. Wait until the next day. So basically, after every win or loss, it was good win, tough loss, you know, whatever you're meeting next, we'll meet and discuss it further. That gives you the time to actually watch what really happened, think about how you want to present the information, and you're not making mistakes based on immediate emotional reaction, which I think can harm a team. I think the second thing, if I was sensing a loss of enthusiasm, film was out the door. Team film sessions can be the greatest drainer of energy that I've seen. And then the amount of practice time, how long you're on the floor, how much is five on five versus drill work, I think also leads to a level of enthusiasm. And I think that's real. 
And I think sometimes hitting them with a curveball is good. If you throw too many curveballs, though, it becomes more normalized and it lessens its impact. Again, these are more like feel things, the art of coaching. And you only learn it actually by coaching and being a head coach and being responsible for all these things. Coach, you said the importance of celebrating small improvements within your players. And if we can maybe diverge a little bit from this conversation and take a tangent, I'd love to hear your thoughts just on skill acquisition. And what do you think like really matters or how you think guys learn and acquire skill and the best practices as a coach we can help our players with? Yeah, I think the skill acquisition is obviously you have to learn how to do something first, but it's actually more important, the decision-making process, once you have a skill, when to use it, how to use it, where to use it. So I think you have to, after there's some level of skill acquisition, you actually have to design things in practice that give players the chances to use the new skills that are found. And that's why you read it all the time or you listen to it all the time, teaching a guy how to play. It's incredibly important. And the only way to do that is through trial and error where they're competing. I look back on myself. I was an absolute bitch against cones. Cones, to me, chair, I was great. It was when the other dudes got out on the floor, particularly ones that were bigger, longer, faster, stronger. That's how you learn how to maybe get your shot off quicker, create more space, play faster when you're slower and in the open court more so you have more advantage. Whatever the thing is, you're not going to get that. And this is why I don't understand actually some of the training that goes on that everybody thinks that their shot selection should be just like anybody else's shot selection. And I think there has to be more teaching as they're playing. And that's why like uh, Rick Pitino, who I know you guys had on too, he always used to say, coach on the fly. Don't stop everything. You can't have a coach the head coach stopping it, and then an assistant coach stopping it, the next possession. you got to learn to coach on the fly, correct on the fly, because that's also how you have to coach in a game. You have to be succinct enough and figure out what's most important and try to get it corrected on the fly so that a player can play successfully in the heat of competition. We've been to practice a couple of times, but just your thoughts on you've seen so many great coaches over the years. What great coaches do after losses? What in that practice, that next day practice? You mentioned after the game, not doing a lot, but what it is after the loss that that practice looks like. Let's say right now we're talking about kind of mid-season type of stuff. Well, Dick Bennett, I think the former great everywhere coach, Washington State, Wisconsin, Stevens Point, Wisconsin, Stevens Point, et cetera, et cetera. He had the best And I think it's true. The game tells me what we should practice and practice what happens the most in a game. You think about it. The simplicity of those two statements makes it simple, really, then to plan practice. And I think what good, again, I think it goes back to what type of team you have. I used to work with a coach when I was working for Coach Riley at the Knicks named Dick Carter. Dick Carter was a longtime NBA college coach since passed, but he had this phrase, and it's really true to me can't beat up a bad team. And so when you beat up on a good team and you go after them, you know, because you have a good team, most likely they're going to have good results the next game because we're better than the other team. You beat up a bad team knowing that you beat them up for all their inadequacies and they're going to probably get pounded again the next night. Then you build an environment that's demoralized versus energized. And so I think you have to take into account 
not just the result, but the result based on how you should have done your talent versus their talent? Did you fail because of you're not as good or because of effort, because of dumb play, because of you know inadequate fundamental work, which you might have to take some of the blame as the coach? So I just think so much of it goes into it. But I think if you can keep the Dick Bennett simplicity, which is, you know, the game tells me what to practice. I think that's probably the best thing you can do and practice what happens the most in the game. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high-powered, affordable, and easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com slash glass. That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. Coach, we'd like to pivot now to a segment on the show we call Start, Sub, or Sit. I know you've played this before, and we're going to return to it now with you. So we got a couple of Start, Sub, Sits for you. So if you're ready, we'll dive into this first one. All set. So this first Start, Sub, Sit has to do with playoff adjustments. And I know you talk all the time here about, hey, these coaches make great adjustments in the playoffs, things like that. We're going to give you three different ways coaches can adjust. And the start would be what you think is the most important for coming out on top in that series. So start, sub, or sit. First one is tweaking an offensive scheme. So not like an overhaul, but just a tweak of where you're going to attack. The second option is defensive pick and roll coverages, especially late game. And then the third option is subtle lineup changes or matchups that may or may not help in that series. I don't know if you guys ever watched the Manning cast. Peyton Manning just went off about, he never saw a halftime adjustment in the NFL. It was usually come in, go to the bathroom, get an orange slice, and a coach says, let's go. The one thing I've never understood about, quote, the halftime adjustment and the media's preoccupation with it is if something's going wrong, why would you wait till halftime to correct it? So you see something going wrong in the first quarter, and as a coach, you're going to say, well, I'll get to that at halftime. What? That doesn't even make sense. But there's this preoccupation with halftime adjustment. Why can't there be a mid-third quarter adjustment? Like you were just saying, maybe a certain pick and roll is hurting you that they didn't use in the first half, but now they're crushing you in the second half. Are you going to wait to the end of the game and like to the next day? Or are you allowed to make a mid-third quarter adjustment? But <laughs> I'm going to go to my start. Who to play? Who to play should be start, sub, sit. It's the only thing. And usually it's about playing less guys. If I could give one thing to help with every team I watch and I study, my number one suggestion is who do you really want to play? I think most teams benefit by playing one less guy. That could be the best overall difference that I think you can do is play one less guy. Now, Sally's parents may not like that Sally is the one less player, but it usually gives you a better chance at long-term success. Okay. So that would be my start. And then 
you said pick and roll adjustments. I think yeah. pick and roll adjustment usually means getting more aggressive. If you're being hurt by something, very rarely would I say this scheme adjustment would be, let's play it a little softer. Now, that's not to say going under doesn't have its place or drop coverage doesn't have its place. But usually those are more of your base coverages. And I would say that usually getting more aggressive would be your best chance of improvement with an in-game strategic change. And then the third is, you know, I would sit, you know, a tweak offensively. Although you can't minimize that because, again, it comes down to you've got to get your best players, you know, your best shots. I don't know if you were watching the Kansas game last night against Kansas State. They came out of a timeout and Kansas State was down one, I think in overtime, and they got this spin-out lob by Johnson for Kansas State to give them the lead, which ends up being the winning point. So you can't minimize that. You know, they were three-quarter in front, so the entry they brought up above the free-throw line to give an angle so Johnson could spin out and they could throw it to the rim. So I don't think you can minimize that, but I'm not sure it would ever overcome who you play or getting more aggressive in your defensive pick-and-roll scheme. Sure. And what we were wanting to ask in this question is what in a series as it goes seven, six games that actually, I guess, ends up making the difference in winning and losing. And uh, you kind of mentioned it, the players, obviously, and who you play. But what are these teams are actually doing maybe to give themselves advantages as it wears on? Matchups. You didn't like a matchup. I think that's number one. How you're going to deal with the great player. Do you believe as you watch the entire game, we need to double more, double less, live with him through three quarters, go after him in the fourth. I think that's something that, again, because the regular season isn't as valued as much in the NBA, in college, every game is like Armageddon because you only get so many opportunities. Same in high school. You don't just say, oh, it's only a regular season game. We can get them in the playoffs. You may not qualify. So I think that's important, You know how you're going to deal with the great player. And hopefully, as a coach, you already have practiced the different manners, however many you believe you need, to take out the great post player, wing isolation, pick and roll in the middle, pick and roll on the side, catch and shoot player. You've gone through your great player defense catalog, so you know in order like how you want to proceed. I think that's absolutely critical. And then usually the biggest, quote, adjustment from game to game in an NBA playoff series, how hard you try, how determined you are, and how well you shoot the ball. So free throws that didn't, yeah, 15 for 26 turns into 24 for 26, got a much better chance to win. 10 for 34 from three turns into 16 for 34, much better chance to win. So shooting the ball well, and then who you play. Like, do you decide to play a different guy, more guys, less guys? To me, those are the two things. And then do you try? Are you more determined to get a loose ball? And again, to think you as a coach are in charge of all of that, that's where your coaching confidence will ebb and flow. If you lack humility that the ball bounced your way one game or rattled in one game and bounced out last game and you think it's because of you, you're going to have some huge peaks and valleys from a confidence standpoint as a coach. Before we move on, I'd like to ask one question and maybe take a more of a global view and what we talked about earlier, being consistent as a team. You mentioned your advice that you kind of often give is like play one less guy. Do you find there's a reluctancy from coaches to do that during the season or that they get stuck to this notion of like, you know, I want to play eight to nine guys? 
Well, I think it's really hard. And I'll go back to another one. It's a Dick Bennett because the guy's so smart. So my brother was a coach at Wisconsin for one year and Dick Bennett replaced him. And Dick Bennett, who'd always been in-state in Wisconsin, was always good to my brother, who was an assistant at Wisconsin, then the head coach. So he replaces my brother and my brother gets in a conversation with him. And he says, this is, you know, after Dick's been on the job for a while. And he said something to the effect, have you watched a lot of the games from last year? And if you do, could you tell me what you think about what I did right, wrong, you know, whatever. So Dick Bennett says to my brother, he said, the one question I had watching is you were changing your eighth man a lot. And he said, I think you would have been better served to either pick one and just stay with him instead of rotating your eighth man. Or if you don't believe in your eighth man, play seven. I think that is absolutely profound. And I have never forgotten that. That was probably, I don't know, 30 years, 30 some years ago. I just think oftentimes these answers that we try to make more complex, there's an answer in simplicity. And to me, that one right there, if you can't decide which one, maybe the best answer is none of the above. Or create rhythm and consistency to give this eighth man a chance and confidence that hey, you're going to get a chance every night. may not be exactly what you want minute-wise, but you're going to get a chance. And every coach is going to play a guy more when he's successful and less when he's not, or when the team's successful. And so I thought that was brilliant. Pat, I go back to, I think sometimes you get stuck in this eighth man or ninth man isn't giving you exactly what you want or hope to, and you constantly change versus sticking him or eliminate that role totally and just play less guys. Play your best players more is usually a good alternative. All right, coach. Our last start subset for you has to do with attacking a box in one. And the three situations we're going to give you are ways to use the one player who's being keyed in on in order to help the four other players be successful. So is it taking that one player and just spacing him in the corner? allowing the four guys space to operate and play? Is it using that one player as a screener? Or is it running that one player off of staggered screens or using him as a cutter to create duck-ins, create gaps for the other four? I would like to place the sit in the next arena because it's so far sitting, which is standing and spacing, okay? So that's like so far out of the, like, I don't even want to consider that. The start is, I want to combine those two. I want to use them as a screener to open up the interior game. So if you can imagine a shooter in the corner where the low man in the box and one has to take him, and then a cross screen to bring a guy to the ball. So basically, you should have an open area. I think using him as a screener while giving him the ability to still move off of screens, I think is absolutely critical. But that's why your best players who are these talented scorers have to be willing to do the unglamorous. They got to be willing to play the tambourine song, set a great screen to help others play better. It's not just passing the ball. It's doing the physically demanding, gritty, grimy things that can help you. So that's absolutely imperative to me in defeating these multiple defenses whether it's a box and one, diamond and one. The only time I would say the thing I sat, I don't know if you remember this guy named Jimmy Patsos was the coach at 
Loyola, Maryland, and he played Steph Curry in college. And he put two guys on Steph Curry and three to play four. Now, I got to say, that's ballsy. And Bob McKillop stood Steph Curry in the corner with the two dudes, which made absolute sense. So if you go against sir defense like that, that, you know, you just want to say, hey, can you just keep those two guys out of the way and we'll play four on three over here? And so they did. <laughs> Coach, in terms of your start and your sit, when you're going to run the screening action and you gave an example of a cross screen, but do you think in terms of attacking out of the high post or getting the ball attacking out of the low post, do you think there's a preference or a point that's more damaging or conducive to having success? Well, I think the screens that lead you directly to the catches being as close to the basket as possible. So whether he's setting cross screen or then a back screen, the ones that are going to bring you layup, I think those multiple defenses are willing to live with jump shots that come from guys who may be not used to that type of volume of jump shots. So I would say you would want those screens to lead directly to puncturing a defense as close to the basket as possible. You're trying to create layups and then more movement you know, for your guy. I remember back, we were in the Olympics and we were playing Australia and it was an elimination round. And again, people forget, you know, because they only know the result. So we won the gold medal. Now we were in a round and we we're against Australia. Elimination game. We're down 15 in the first half. 15, Australia. And if you've ever watched them play, they play beautiful offensive basketball. Joe Ingles, Patty Mills, big guys that can pass. Great system of movement that you just don't see in NBA basketball where there's more just stationary, five out, attacking, right? But over there, because they have to create more angles because they don't have the one-on-one ability, they play beautiful basketball. So anyway, they're carving us up. At the shoot-around that morning, Greg Popovich put in a triangle and two. And when I say, again, this goes back to his brilliance because of his simplicity. It was put in in three minutes of a shoot-around. All right, we're going to have this guy guard Mills, this guy guard Ingles. What about if they pick on the ball? We switch in that. Stay with your man. The triangle remains the triangle. Well, what if they do? You know, I'm peppering them with these questions. Like, what? Basically, he didn't say, Jeff, shut up, but he (laughs) threw his actions. It was like, Jeff, shut up. You're trying to complicate something that's not complicated. We're only going to this if we need it. The two dudes, Drew Holiday, and I forgot who our other guy was, are going to be in Ingles and Mills, right? So they're carving us up. First half, down 15, absolutely carving us up. We went over this. I'm stretching it maybe three minutes, but it was either two or three. We go to it and it changes the whole dynamic of the game. We get back. I think we cut it to seven. Didn't use it at all in the second half. Dominated with our man-to-man defense in the second half, but it slowed the rhythm of Ingles and Mills. So my point on all that is simplicity again. Popovich, brilliant. Me complicating it. Stupid. Okay. (laughs) But even more so, I think every team should have a triangle and two, a box and one, diamond and one. Whatever gimmick defense that you can put in, it's not going to carry you home, but it can maybe change the course and alter the flow of a game. I don't know why you wouldn't have it in when it only takes a few minutes to put in. I don't even know what the question was, Pat. Now <laughs> It was a way to get the four guys some scoring, some buckets yeah. against the box and one. Yeah, get it close to the rim. I also think, too, the other pretty good shooters, they have to be willing 
to shoot volume. I think when you become hesitant on a couple straight misses is when you play into the hands of gimmick defense. You've got to play with aggression, get it close to the basket, shoot or shoot, and shoot without hesitation. And if a miss or two is going to make you more hesitant, then you're really not a shooter. Right. Yeah. And I think that Davidson, Steph Curry game, Steph Curry has zero, but Davidson did win that game, if I remember. I think by a large amount, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So they did hold him to zero, though, I believe. So they have did that. They, I, I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah. I just remember watching. Just, yeah. Coach, just my follow up on this is kind of around what you just mentioned. And sometimes, like, the benefit of going to Triangle Two or Box and One is it does mess with the flow of the offense and the great player all of a sudden is pressing to find the shot. And we've talked about like different ways, like what to run maybe against it that can work. But how about your thoughts of just not running something special and just telling your team to just run whatever you normally run, just run it. So that way you're kind of not taking away, I guess, the feel or the flow of what your team usually does against one of these junk defenses. I think there's great value to that. Going back to simplicity, where you make minor alterations. And so hopefully you would have something in where your best player is screening for a guy who is coming to the basket because of the value of great shooters. They're going to stay attached to you. Your screen can give other people point blank opportunity. So I would hope you would have enough in your offensive arsenal that you would have things like that. But I agree with you in general. I think it's the same way against zone. I watch some teams do totally different things and they become so much less aggressive. I would just say, listen, can we get, can we run our stuff and then figure out how to adjust and get the ball into the middle of the zone, get it behind the zone, not play five out or four out against the zone, which is a perfect shape. Like you watch Miami zone, they mess with people because everybody stays four out on the perimeter versus three out, two in. Three out, two in to me at the end of the day against two, three zone is the way to attack. So you got to attack behind, you got to attack in the middle. And if you can do that by retaining your aggression, whether it's running man stuff that instead of a, a screen down and a post up is a screen down and a flash into the middle, things of that nature. I think, again, the simpler you can keep it so that your guys play with a rhythm and a flow and an aggression, the better your chances are. Coach, you're off the uh, start, sub, or sit. Well, one of them you exiled to another arena. <laughs> I also want to sit cliches. Yeah. <laughs> if you could eliminate the cliche, like that's the next start, sub, or sit that if I'm ever on again. <laughs> yeah. Is which cliche you would like to keep, <laughs> sub, or totally remove for the game? Yeah. I think the ball movement versus settling is the one I would definitely like to sit. Yeah. Okay. 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 It's going to be standing in the corner with that other guy. Yeah. That's the Curry double team. Yeah. 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 Okay. We can definitely make that happen. So yeah, thanks for going through those with us. That was a lot of fun. We've got one more question for you before we end today, but thanks again for your time. This was really awesome. So we appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. You guys have done a great job. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, Coach, last time we asked you what your best investment was. And so we're going to give you a different one to close today. And, you know, you see so much of the game. You're always studying the game. And we thought it'd be interesting to ask you, what are you most curious about right now when it comes to coaching and the game of basketball? I'm really curious about practice, how much, how often, what time of the day. I think 
team practice is being devalued at the NBA level. I think it's hard to be a really good defensive team without team practice, along with the great skill level of the players and the space created through the three-point shooting. I think the lack of team practice and the commitment to that area has really made it hard to be a really good defensive team. So I think all those things, and then to tie into that, you mentioned to me before we were on, I think about your injuries at the Division three level. Why does it seem, if there is a more games missed, more practices missed, why at every level are injuries up? And is it because they're diagnosed more and they're not playing through as much, thankfully, like with concussions? Is it soft tissue injuries, which I always, as a coach, thought, quote, are the preventable ones? Like, why is it? Can it be improved? What needs to change? Either our practices, are they too demanding? Are they demanding enough? Are we doing enough so that when guys go out and play in full speed in a game at these high intensity levels, are their bodies conditioned? I truly don't know. I think I'm curious about in that respect supersedes what a lot of the scientists are. They don't seem as curious as I would expect them to be. They seem pretty much like have the bent of less is more. Do less, save people. And there just seems to be a lack of curiosity as far as is truly that best. Maybe it is. Maybe there are reasonable explanations for all these games missed and practices missed. And even at your level, like, I wonder, are we practicing too much, too little, too much contact? You know, I always was a big believer if you were going game, practice, game, that practice in between the two games, we never had contact. We never played live. We tried to generate an intensity or a teaching, but it wasn't to the rebound and it wasn't five on five. I don't know the answers, but I'm super curious about everything related to practice, related to injury, loss games, because it goes back. I think so many teams, I think that the Knicks and the Raptors to me in the NBA are really interesting because they are willing to play their better players more. And in particular, I think the Knicks are totally overachieving right now. I think they're five games over 500. Most predictions I saw this year were four games under 500. I think the number one thing is they're willing to play their best players more and more often. You know, the media has a hand ringing. They're all the minutes police because, you know, it's an easy thing to say. A guy played 38 minutes or 32 minutes. And there's this cutoff that we all in our minds have like 34 is okay, 36 is too much. So in those next two minutes, are we saying that that's where the injuries take place? What type of injury? Why are we hand wringing? Is it just because as people who can all look in a box score, we see 36 minutes? I think when you are stationed in the corner a lot, like you could play 48 minutes. You're not doing anything for 24. You're just standing there. So right. I just think I'm a little bit appalled at the lack of curiosity as it relates to all these things. It's very dogmatic. Like this is it. Less is more. 38 minutes is too much. I always love these arbitrary numbers. So it's the same with foul trouble. I don't know if you guys ever go with this, but like, Dan, is your team like the guy gets a second foul? He's out for the half in the first half? Not this year. We've put him back in at times, depending on who the player is. Usually a better player. Okay. I used to say like to guys, I, I didn't like to play in my rotation when they got the second foul. You're so valuable. Sit over there. <laughs> yeah. No, but I just think like I've never understood arbitrary numbers. So. College basketball, first half, second foul. 
he can't play in the first half, which is up to 20 minutes. So let's say at 1959, absolutely cannot play. At 20 minutes, he can play again. Does that even make sense? If the game was a continuous 40 minutes, would you really say absolutely not 1959, absolutely at 20, he can play again? (laughs) The same like with minutes, not every minute is the same. It's pitch counts in baseball. It's the individual athletes may tell you that their drop-off is at 26 minutes. I'm just super curious about practice, games, minutes, injuries. I'm super interested in that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Would we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass. When you get the Australian scientist sports performance dude <laughs> on, yeah. and I just sit and listen, because <laughs> yeah. I think, like, that's another thing. Why does everybody yeah. have to be Australian? I don't understand. Are they the only scientists that understand anymore? <laughs> <laughs>